the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Turn to Luke chapter 18 this evening. Luke chapter 18. We have walked with Jesus throughout Luke's narrative and have seen Him pursue lost sinners and show them the way to God. Of particular importance to us and His disciples at that time was what the kingdom would be like and what it takes to enter into that kingdom. And in our passage tonight, we're going to see the importance of persevering while we wait for the kingdom and then what it takes to enter the kingdom in this last part. So I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 18 and read through verse 17. This is the Word of God. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying God be merciful to me the sinner I tell you this man went to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted and there are And they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to Me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus is talking about perseverance in faith and He's showing us that we must persevere in faith as we wait for His return. We must persevere in faith as we wait for the Lord's return. Verses 1-8, through we see this expectant prayer that we should have as we wait for the Lord's return. We should have an expectant prayer that we live by faith while we wait for His return. Jesus has been talking here in chapter 17 about His departure and about His return to the earth. Chapter 17, verses 22 to 37. And here He continues on that theme. He wants the disciples to know, and us, 
how to live while we wait for the return of the Lord. He wants them to know that in the midst of difficulty, that, verse 1, we must pray and not lose heart. We must pray and not lose heart. This does not mean that we should recite the same prayer over and over again, but rather we should be like this widow or like a lawyer who keeps coming back to God, bringing the same case and trying to present it in a different way so that he responds. The parable is given in verses 2 through 5. The first character in the parable is the judge. Notice this judge, verse 2, he did not fear God and did not respect man. He's an impartial judge. He didn't have he was no respecter of persons. So if you're rich, if you're powerful, if you had great position, it didn't matter to this judge. He was impartial and he could not be bribed. It didn't matter how much money you gave him, he wasn't going to do it. He didn't care about the things of God either. The second character that we are introduced to is this persistent or nagging widow. We all know someone like this, don't we? They just keep coming back and they won't stop until they get what they want or until you give them a reasonable response. And this is the way the widow is before this unjust judge. Now, when you think about this widow, don't think about a 65-year-old lady with four kids who are all grown and 15 grandkids. And these four kids can, you know, they all have their own jobs so they can help provide for, for her. And that she has the government helping her There's all sorts of government programs that help her to get by. No, this is probably a woman who's in her 30s or 40s with possibly several young children to feed but without any income. These young ladies would get married in their teens often and have children shortly thereafter. And if she had a house full of children without a husband, without an income, she would be in a desperate situation. And not only is her situation desperate in that way. But in addition to that, she has some kind of legal problem that is that is uh, opposing her. Verse 3, There's a widow in this city and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. She had someone that was coming after her, maybe for payments, maybe for taxes. But she, had a, she felt like she had a case. She kept came and coming to the judge And notice his initial response in verse 4. For a while he was unwilling. He didn't want to help her. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about widows. He didn't care about people. He wanted to make sure justice was, was done. But then the result of her persistent nagging is seen in verses 4 and 5. And he feels like he's forced to respond. But afterward he said, verse 4, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man... Yet, because this widow bothers me, because she bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. This phrase, wear me out, here in verse 5, comes from one Greek word that means to give a black eye. It is the word for assault or uh, an attack or a beat down. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.27 when he says, I, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. I beat my body into subjection, effectively. And this is the word that's used to the widow that goes to the, the judge. And the judge says, if I don't stop, she's going to give me a black eye. She's going to attack me. And that's the idea. Not, maybe not a literal attack that he was afraid of, but the point is that 
she's very serious about getting this case settled. The judge was so moved by the lady's action that he thought if he didn't help her, that she would attack him in some way. It's as if the judge and the widow are in a boxing ring and the judge is the defending champion. No one can defeat him. He's no respecter of persons or of God. He can beat whoever he wants to. And in comes this little widow and thinking, this is not going to be much of a match. Next thing you know, the widow has him backed in a, quarter and she, in a corner and she's ready to deliver the knockout blow. And he says, okay, okay. I'll give you what you want. Her shameless persistence got her what she wanted. Now, Jesus uses that to help us to see something about our relationship with God. He applies it in verses 6-8. through eight. The first thing that we need to see is to see the points of comparison that Jesus intends. Okay? So first, who is, the unjust like, uh, who is the unjust judge like in the mind of Christ? Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, Now will not God... The unjust judge, in some way, is like God. And we'll talk about, obviously, not in every way. The widow is like whom? What does it say there? Verse 7. The elect. His elect. Now will not God bring about justice for His elect? That is, His chosen ones. His, his sheep. The believers. Okay, so we're, we're kind of just drawing these points of comparison. The third point of comparison that we need to see is that the unjust circumstances, Her, remember she has some legal opponent, uh, some opponents that has some legal argument against her. The unjust circumstances that she has are like what? And I think it is the, un, the injustices that we face, face in the coming age. Verse 8, I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? And Basically, Jesus is saying, listen, okay, God is like the unjust judge. We need to come to Him with our request. We have some injustices that are happening to us and will not God respond? Now, again, the point is not that God is an unjust judge, unconcerned about the needs of His chosen ones. Rather, this is an argument from lesser to greater. The lesser argument is, if this unrighteous, God-despising judge responds to a nagging widow, then, here's the greater argument, how much more will your Heavenly Father, your Father in Heaven, give to you what you ask when you ask Him persistently, uh, unashamedly? How much more will God do it? That's the point. Okay, So the point of comparison is not the, again, not the injustice or the injustice of the judge. The point of comparison is that God has the ability to answer your request and we need to go to Him. And so from this we learn two primary principles. One, God is faithful to respond to the prayers of His children. God is faithful to respond to the prayers of His children. He does not delay. He's not like the unjust judge that's like, I'm, I'm not going to give this to them. I don't want to give this to them. God wants to respond to us and He's waiting for us to ask. Instead, He will not delay. He will respond quickly. Secondly, we learn that God's children must persevere in the midst of a hostile world. We must persevere in the midst of a hostile world. Let me show you why I say this. Look at chapter 17, verse 20. Notice the question that the Pharisees ask. 
having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So their question is when. Notice verse 37 of chapter 17. The disciples, now Jesus turns to the disciples, tells them about what's going to happen in the end times, and he says, and then the disciples say in verse 37, Where, Lord? Where are these things going to happen? But notice the question that Jesus asks about the end times, verse 8 of chapter 18. The second part of the verse says, However, when the Son of Man comes, in other words, when He returns, will He find faith on the earth? Will He find faith? The question that Jesus wants them to ask and answer is, how are believers going to how are the people of the earth going to respond to the return of the Lord? Okay, when and where, those are all important, helpful questions, but the most important thing is what relationship do we have with Christ? What do we think about the Lord's return? In fact, this word faith here in verse eight, if you look in the margin of your Bible, the alternative there is the faith, and that's because that's the literal translation. And here's the question he's asking. Will he find the faith on the earth? In other words, will he find people in the faith? He will he find people persevering in the faith on the earth? It's a rhetorical question that Jesus asks to say this is the most important thing. Notice what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to pray even despite the injustices that are going on in this world. He's calling us to persevere in the midst of hostility through expectant prayer to our heavenly judge who will vindicate us. And I think what he's thinking about, uh, what he's talking about more generally is just the, the injustices that happen on the earth. We're praying for the Lord's return. That's the injustice. And he's not here. The earth is, is out of sorts. And Christ needs to return and put everything back in order. And that's us before the judge. Yes, we can pray for our minor injustices. You know, this person mistreated me. This boss didn't understand where I'm coming from because I'm a Christian. Yes, we can pray for those things. But I think primarily he's saying, pray to God about the injustices that are happening on the earth and pray for the proper solution, which is what? The return of the Son of Man. And when He returns, will He find us persevering in the faith? Will He find it? It's amazing that God can do whatever He wants. And He can do all of His purposes, if He wanted to, without us. And He could accomplish the salvation of the lost without us. He could get them a Bible in some way. He could could call somebody else to tell them. He could bring about discipleship without us. He could do it without our prayers, but He chooses to use our prayers. God says, listen, yes, I can do it however I want. I don't, I'm not a God who needs anything. Okay? But I've chosen to use you, my people. In fact, when, he's, when Jesus is talking to His disciples, He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth laborers. In other words, God could send those out. He could call them on His own. He could... Uh, prick their hearts, send them on their own. But you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to ask. He wants to pray, us to pray that He would send those laborers. He's waiting for our prayers. 
He's waiting for our expectant, dependent prayers. God works through the prayers of His people. He expects us to act through prayers. So first, expectant prayer, verses 1-8. through Secondly, genuine faith, verses 9-17. to Genuine faith. If we're going to persevere, we need to have expectant prayer. We need to have genuine faith. We need to put everything that we have into God's care. And here Jesus gives another parable. This, a parable of the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And before we get into this, let me just kind of set up what He's going to talk about here in the next chapter and a half. Jesus has been addressing how we should wait for the kingdom. How we should live as we wait for that kingdom. And now He turns His attention to what it means to enter into the kingdom. So, as we're waiting for the kingdom, we should be like the Master who is away and we have some jobs to do in the house. We need to keep working. We need to keep waiting, ready for the Master to return at any time. We need to be like the the five wise virgins who trimmed their lamps and were ready to go when the when the groom came. Okay? That's how we ought to be waiting. We ought to be persevering in prayer and expectant um, expectant waiting for our Savior. But what, is, how, what does it mean to enter the kingdom? How, how can we enter into the kingdom? Now, now what Jesus is going to do over the next chapter and a half here is He's going to show us what genuine faith looks like. And it is putting everything into God's care. And we have several examples to learn from, some positive, some negative, most positive. Okay, we, here in this first parable that we're going to look at, we have both a positive and a negative example of what it looks like to have genuine faith. Tax collector shows genuine faith. Pharisee is a negative example. In verses 15 to 17, we have an example. I'll talk about how that is, but we have an example from children or babies in verses 15 to 17. Verses 18 to 27, we have a negative example of the rich young ruler. In verses 28 to 30, we have a positive example of the disciples. In verses 35 to 43, we have a positive example of the blind man. And then chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, we have a positive example of this tax collector, Zacchaeus. Tonight, we're going to focus on the first two. These prayers, tax collector and the Pharisees, and the children. And then we'll look at the next three next week, the rich young ruler, the disciples, and the blind man, what it looks like to have genuine faith. And then we'll look at the next one the following week. So let's look at this parable here in verses 9 through 14. 9 to 14. Notice the point of the parable is given to us right up front. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So here we see where Jesus' target is. He's got a target audience of people who think they can do it all apart from God. So now he's going to give a parable to reveal their sin and and, uh, show them their foolishness. He's showing people who have confidence in themselves that they will not be accepted by God. And here is the parable with two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. First, we see the pride of the Pharisee in verses 11 and 12. The pride of the Pharisee. He's thankful that he's not like other wicked people. And, he, that, and he's thankful that he does great acts of righteousness. Right? He fasts more than he ought to. 
there in verse 12. I fast twice a week. The requirement, by the way, for Jews was one time per year. It's required by the law. But then the Jews added more and then the Pharisee says, well, I'm going to do it twice a week. And he says that he even tithes more than was required. It wasn't just that he tithed on his income. He actually tithed on all of his resources. And so he's saying, I'm thankful that I'm like that. Of course, what he didn't recognize was that God was not just looking for his acts of righteousness. It wasn't just that. He was looking for his whole life that was given over to God. He he wanted the Pharisees to see that they were unworthy slaves, like in chapter 17, verse 10. You know, at the end of it all, when we come in from the end of a long day's work for you, God, for your kingdom, all we can say is we are unworthy slaves and we have only done what we've asked. We've been asked. We're not asking for thank you. We feel like it's our obligation to serve you. That's what God was looking for. But this Pharisee was far from that. He felt that he was in good standing before God because of his merit, of his merits. Look at verse 11 again. The Pharisee stood and was praying this, and notice this phrase, to himself. To himself. He's not praying to God. His prayer doesn't even make it to God. He's praying to himself. Notice the prayer begins properly. I, God, I thank you. Or, I thank God. And now we would say, for what? What do you thank God for? And what we'd expect from the Pharisee is that he would thank God for his character and for his work and for the mercy that he's shown to him. But instead, you know what he says? God, thanks so much for me. Have you seen how I'm not like other people who make up the scum of the earth? And I'll list a few of them for you just to see how terrible they are. And have you seen how many great religious acts of service that I've done? God, thank you for me. And after he talks about all of his spiritual accolades, we have to wonder how the Pharisee expects God to respond. Because he doesn't ask anything of God, does he? As Daryl Bach puts it in his commentary, he says maybe he wants God to apply to be his assistant. The height of blasphemy, the height of pride is seen in this Pharisee. Now, don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with using the word I. As I was studying through some of these commentaries, they constantly point out, notice how many times you use the word I, but, but read through the Psalms sometimes. Right? The word I is constantly used. It's, it's how you use it it's, it's, that's most important. Like in what context are you, you using the word I? The problem with him is that his references to himself were not connected to a relationship with God but other than, because other than this address to God at the beginning, God, I thank you, he doesn't talk about God at all. And so his prayers don't make it to God. Notice the contrast between this prayer and the prayer that the Lord taught His disciples. Remember? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is Your name, and Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See how that prayer that Jesus gives to His disciples to model? is Yes, it uses the word I and, and our, but it's more about God, isn't it? It's about God's kingdom. It's about forgiveness before God. It's about our improper standing. It's about the mercy that we need from God. It's about protecting us from temptation, which is a part of God's plan. You see, that's not what the Pharisee's doing here. He's more concerned about himself and about boasting in himself, and that's why he stands and speaks probably in a loud tone so that everyone will hear what a great person he is. And yet the model that Jesus gives us in chapter 11, verses 2-4, to is one that's focused on God and our dependence on Him. And that's what we see here in this good example of the tax collector, his humility in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. He felt that he earned no standing before God. He could accomplish nothing good apart from God's favor. And so these actions of beating his breast, standing a a long way off, was a sign of worthlessness and shame. And and his words express the humility that Jesus indicates is in his heart. Notice verse 13. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See, he did not trust in himself. He put his whole life in God's care. This is what Jesus is teaching here. He's turning the corner from what are you supposed to be doing between now and the coming kingdom? You're supposed to be persevering. You're supposed to be waiting in expectant prayer for the Lord. You're supposed to be continuing with your work. Now He turns the corner and says, this is what genuine faith looks like. This is how you enter into the kingdom. And it is putting everything that you have in God's care. That's this tax collector recognized his worthlessness. Notice the application, verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, part of the application comes in the introduction to the parable, verse 9, and that is that pride is deadly. Pride is deadly. It, It causes us to trust in ourselves rather than God. See what these people are doing? Verse 9, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with, the con- with contempt. Here's the problem with pride. Two problems. One, it causes us to trust in ourselves and not in God. That's a dangerous position to be in. Secondly, it causes us to look down on others with contempt. Rather than seeing, you know that tax collector over there? He's also made in the image of God. You know that unbelieving pagan? He's also made in the image of God. But the point of the parable here in verse 14 is that we cannot earn justification by our own humility. The point is not, okay, well, the humble guy, he he earned his justification. That's not the point. But rather that those who fall on God in mercy will be justified. Those who think they're righteous because of their works, they justify themselves. They say, "I'm, I'm okay. And God says, but you're not justified by me. You may justify yourself, but you're not the final judge and you'll be condemned to hell. But those who depend on God for mercy recognize that there's no merit of their own. And we come before God empty-handed. We have to fall on Him for mercy. The contrast in this parable is between someone who seeks status on the basis of merit, Pharisee, 
and someone who acknowledges his lack of status. So the example of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Secondly, we see the example of the unreserved trust of children, verses 15 to 17, the unreserved trust of children. Finally, we have another positive example of what our faith ought to look like. We saw it with the tax collector. Now we see it in children. And that is that we will depend on God for everything. Here, children are being brought to Jesus. The word here in verse 15 is babies are being brought to Him. NIV translates it as children. And it could be that babies were brought to Him, but that same Greek word that's translated babies in the New American Standard is the word that's used for children uh, that's used of Timothy when he's sitting at the feet of his mother and grandmother as they teach him the truths of the Scripture. So he's, it, it could be including babies, but I think it's probably more than that. I think it's probably some young toddlers as well. Now, Jesus is not teaching that all these children are God's children or that all of these children that come are genuine believers or will be genuine believers. It's not what He's teaching. Notice what He says here in verse 16. But Jesus called to them saying, Permit the children. The disciples are kind of put off by them. You know, Jesus doesn't have time for this. You know, He's a big star right now and He's only got time for the important things. So you guys just step back. No more kids. We don't have time for that. You've got a lot to do. And Jesus says, Permit the children to come to Me and do not hinder them. For, and here's the point, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He doesn't say the kingdom of God belongs to these, that every single one of these children will be in the kingdom. That's not what He's saying. He's saying the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And we have to say, well, what does that mean? What do you mean such as these? Who are like children? And He answers it in verse 17. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, and I would say receives the kingdom of God or receives a parent, will not enter it at all. He's helping His followers to see that we tend to dismiss those of lower society and think they have little use. And these children are actually good examples for us because they're examples of dependent trust on their parents, aren't they? They have nothing else to do but fall on their parents for help because they are completely dependent on them. That's what Jesus expects us to do when we come to our Father. We don't come with any independence saying, you know, I can do this on my own. I can come to God on my own. But I will take help. It's not the idea. Rather, these children are an example for us. All children are an example for us that they rely on their parents without question. Okay, younger ones. Okay, thinking, thinking the younger ones. And we should, in some way, rely on our Father for the entrance of the kingdom. We should not rely on our social status but instead, dependently fall on our Father for mercy. God, we have nothing before us that we can bring that will contribute to our eternal well-being. And we need You. And we have nothing left to do but to turn to You in faith. That's what genuine faith looks like. That's the kind of faith that's going to get us into the kingdom. The kingdom that trusts God. So let me leave you with four points of application from these three uh, passages here that we looked at tonight. Number one, difficulty because of your faith will come. Like the widow, we're going to have opposition in life. We will face hostility. We will be the object of unjust action because of our faith. Now, there will be other things 
that happen to us unjustly that are not a result of our faith. Maybe it's because of our foolishness. Maybe it's just because we live in a sin-cursed world. But we will actually have unjust treatment of, of ourselves in this fallen world. So recognize that difficulty because of your faith will come. But then secondly, recognize that God will bring vindication even though, though there may be some delay. God will bring vindication. This is what Jesus wants us to pray for. Pray for the coming kingdom. Pray for the return of our Savior. Pray that this world, this world's curse is reversed. Pray that the injustices would stop and that Christ would bring about true and final justice. Pray that to your Father. How much more will He answer you than this unjust judge who cares nothing about God or the widow? Now, I say God will bring vindication even though there may be some delay. In terms of our perspective, it seems like He's delaying a long time. It seems like God's not in any hurry to send Christ to return. But notice what the text says. This is where we have to fall and trust in God. He says in verse 6 or 7, Now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night, and will He delay long over them? And the implied answer is, no, He will not. He's not going to delay long. Does that mean that Christ is coming in our lifetime? I don't know. But what I do know is that when we get to the next life, we're going to look back on this life and we're going to say, you know what? God didn't delay that long. That this momentary and light affliction that at the time seemed like it would never end. It was, going, it was an eternity living in this life of injustices. At that time, it seemed like it was a long delay. But now I look back on it, now that I'm in heaven, I see things clearly. It was a momentary and light affliction that produces in us an eternal weight of glory, Paul would say. God will bring vindication even though there may be some delay. And so here's what we should do. Number three, we must pray to God for vindication. God wants to hear about your struggles that you face. You know, this widow could say, you know, the judge already knows. I put my case before him. He knows my case. He's got it there. If he wants to address it, he'll address it. But that wasn't good enough for her, was it? She had to keep coming and coming and coming until she got a response. And here's what Jesus is teaching us to do. Do you have injustices that you face in this life? Do you see them in the world? Then take them to God. Take your struggles before God. One of the challenges that we make for ourselves is that we know that God knows what we're thinking and what we're feeling. God already knows what I'm thinking. God knows the struggle that's going on within me. So what value is there in praying? And yes, Jesus is teaching us He does know what's happening. He does know how you feel. But He wants you to pray. He wants you to pray. Be like the widow. That's the point. Keep going to your Father who is just and loving, who cares for you. Bring your concerns before Him. God wants you to voice your discomfort to Him. You might say, what? You know, maybe I shouldn't be complaining to God all the time. Read through the Psalms. Over half of them are laments. 
That is, they just constantly pour out their heart before God. God, how long are you going to allow this injustice to go on? God, how long are you going to let these enemies continue to attack me? Why should we not be like the psalmist and bring God our struggles? Tell God about the injustices that are all around and pray like Jesus taught us to pray that His kingdom would come. Plead with Him to make the wrongs right. That's the bigger picture. The picture is not, okay, I've got some minor injustices. God, when are you going to delay and and take care of those? He's talking, I think, about the bigger picture. And He wants us to come tell God about those struggles because apparently God's storing up all of our prayers, all the prayers of His people over all time and eventually He's going to respond. He's going to say, I'm responding to my children who've been calling for me. And if we are too, if we are too resistant to pray and maybe even too proud to pray, then I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors and we're not advancing the work of God. We're not bringing about the kingdom through our prayers. God demands for us and expects us to pray. So we must pray to God for vindication. Number four, rely on God with childlike trust and avoid the danger of pride. Rely on God with childlike trust and avoid the danger of pride. Pride is a danger that we all must avoid. It's kind of that silent cancer that that affects our whole body. And if it's not taken care of in a short period of time, if we allow it to fester and grow, it will destroy us. And so no matter what station that we are in life, we have to guard ourselves against pride. We can begin to look down on people and think that somehow we deserve God's grace, but they don't. You know, we deserve for God to show us mercy, but not them. I mean, I can see why God would pick me, but what's going on with that? Why would He pick them? You want to know if you struggle with pride? Ask yourself this question. How do I feel when someone else has shown grace? Unmerited, unwanted favor. How do I feel when someone else receives grace from God? If your response is one of contempt, when you see another believer that you despise receive grace and not joy when they receive grace, then you struggle with pride. If you are constantly thinking of yourself like the Pharisee was thinking of himself, as a blessing to God and not as a sinful wretch that deserves nothing but condemnation, then you struggle with pride. If you never pray, you struggle with pride. And you had better be killing pride or pride will be killing you. The kind of people that will enter the kingdom are not those kind of people. They're not the self-righteous The kind of people that will enter the kingdom are those of lowly status who recognize that they deserve condemnation and who throw themselves before God fully and depend on Him for everything. And Jesus says, be like that. Have a childlike trust 
in what God has provided and in His finished work through Jesus Christ alone. Only way you're going to enter the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You for His teaching and for His example in giving Himself for us in death. Lord, guard us against the danger, the, the, the deadly cancer of pride. It comes up so subtly and sometimes we don't even notice it. We need godly people around us to point it out often. Eventually it does come out because the symptoms start to show selfishness, hatred, lack of control. Lord, we, we need Your grace. We, we all, at times, struggle with pride and want to be at the center of attention. We want people to praise us. And yet, Lord, we need to be like the tax collector and like the children who, who just fall on You for mercy. Nowhere else to turn. Lord, help us to recognize our sin in the proper way and recognize the great weight that You've removed from our our backs, the burden that You've removed, bringing us to Christ. There is nothing in our hands that we could bring. Simply to Your cross, the cross of our Savior, we cling. Help us, Lord, to follow You and to live for Your glory. Help us to persevere until the return of Christ and to pray to You about our struggles along the way. Give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.